dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or saber a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Today, I am sitting down with Fa Satharapan Satui. His story begins in Thailand and travels through Stanford, Harvard, and 23andMe before landing at Sunset Cellars in the Susun Valley. If you are enjoying It's Wine in the Wine Glass, I'd appreciate you giving me some love by taking two minutes out of your day to write up a review on whatever app you're listening on. It is the best way to support the show. And if you would like to keep up on everything Exploring the Wine Glass, please sign up for the newsletter at exploringthewineglass.com. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program, someday service, champagne specialist, and WSET level 2 graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials, as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Allure of the Poor, sponsored by Dracina Wines. I am your host, Lori, and today we are traveling up north. And I am going to butcher this, and I apologize, but I tried. I promise I tried. So I have my guest today is Fa Satharaponsatu. Close. Close. All right. Satharaponsatu. <laughs> So, oh, I was so close. I even have the, I have it. I have the I there and I didn't, I didn't say it. I cut myself it, off. It, it is a very long last name. It's, it's 21 letters long. Um, wow. And when I was going to school in the East Coast, um, their limit, their slots, oh. to 20, I think the SAT, <laughs> the, the bubbling part only has 20 letters. So I always leave off the last I. So, okay. But- so I was psychic. I just knew you do that. <laughs> Do, does it have meaning? Does the does yes. it mean something? It, it is a Thai last name. So I grew up in Bangkok, Thailand. Uh, it is a classic um, sort of immigrant, Thai immigrant last name where, you know, actually my father's side is Chinese. So I really should have had the last name Ma, uh, which would have been just one syllable. Right. Uh, but they encourage uh, immigrants to change last names as a part of assimilation to a Thai last name. But all the all the shorter last names were all taken. So we had to go with something longer. Uh, so <laughs> um, is a, a concatenation of three words. Satira means stable, Pong means family, and Sudi means purity. So a stable and pure family. That's us. All right. Well, I like it. I like it. But that is a big difference from going from Ma to <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. It, I guess it, go big or go home. You're going to make us change it. We're going big. <laughs> it's unique. It's unique. I, I appreciate it for that. Uh, not so much for pronounceability. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's definitely a storyline. At, at the very least, it's a, it's a conversation starter, right? <laughs> I always love that. Thank you. And I'm also thinking of like whenever you go to um, an event or whatever, and you have to put your name on a tag, like yeah, you're writing really I, fine. I just say like stick with far. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Well, well, let's let's get into. I I had such you know trouble with the name. I didn't even say the winery, but you are the winemaker. Uh, an owner, right? Uh, one of the owners oh. of Sunset Cellars. Okay, so tell us about Sunset Cellars, which is in the uh, Sassoon Creek. So Sassoon Valley, sorry. Um, so tell us about the location, why the winery chose Sassoon, like what is so great about it? Definitely. So Sunset Cellars, this year we celebrate our 25th uh, vintage. Oh my the- goodness. I know. So I'm a second generation. Uh, you can't tell by my voice, but I, I'm not old enough to be owning it for 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, so as a second generation, the first generation uh, started, the winery started by Doug and Casco, who lived in the Sunset District of San Francisco. So 
and they started making the first vintage in their garage uh, in the Sunset District, therefore Dinning. Uh, so in some way, and this started in 1997, in some way it is kind of a story of that period of time where a lot of pioneers in the industry sort of start their journey as home winemakers. Right. So um, they known some friends who were home wine making before, uh, got the opportunity to work with some fruit from Sonoma County and borrow their Italian neighbors press to work with it. So it's a great stories about how they all got started. But then pretty quickly, they started to win some awards uh, from the county fairs and got gained the con commitment to start at the winery. Um, and 15 years ago, found a site here in Susun Valley after having been buying grapes from mm -hmm. Susun many, many years and really gotten to know the growers and the, the wineries around here and really found that Susun Valley is a great home, not only because we are so close to Napa Valley and other sort of the center of gravity for winemaking, but also that the growers here are so friendly that you can work with them even as a tiny wineries that we are. Um, so fast forward to today, you know, 25 years later, 15 years here at, in Susun, uh, we are still fairly small. So about less than a thousand cases per year. Uh, but we make a, a number of wines uh, ranging mostly red wines, but a, a number of white wines as well. So our flagship has been Barbera. Uh, we have, a, you know, I'm really, really proud of our flashy Barbera, um, really long aging, very unique clone that we have. And maybe we'll get the chance to talk about that later. Um, and yeah, and now we have businesses internationally as well in Japan, uh, as well as a tasting room here in Susun that you can come visit. So I went online and I looked at your website and the first thing that came to my mind is nobody in this picture looks old enough to be drinking wine, never mind making wine. Um, although I don't know if there's a law against age of making wine. You just can't sample what you're making. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think so, actually. I definitely know of friends who like hire or have their children and kids like help make wine. Right. right. But yeah, like you say, they can't sample it. I think pouring in the tasting room definitely has more in the age limit. Yeah, uh, I think so. That being said, all of us are old enough. <laughs> uh, you know, thanks to our Asian genes, probably. I'm, I'm from Bangkok, Thailand, and kids, the last name didn't already give it away. Um, I am 37. Wow. So I'm, I'm much you older. Do... Okay, think. so everybody needs to go to YouTube right now and check out this video because Bob does not look 37 years old. <laughs> It looks book. like he could be like a sophomore in college at this point. Right. <laughs> I, I, I got challenged by like a lifeguard one time where I was hanging out in the adult only pool and it was like 18 and over. And I was like, are you 18? I was like, multiply that by two. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, well, I'll take it. I guess it looks, it's all, all good that I look young. Not a problem. It, problem. It's the problem sometimes, though, when um, you know, with the state, with the status that that I have, with the career that I have now, people still doubt me, right? It's like, are you even old enough to drink? Let alone making good wine. So mm -hmm. sometimes um, it's a problem when I actually had a customer one time when I went on and poured wine to them and introduced myself. Hi, my name is Fa. I'm a winemaker of Sunset, and they were like assistant winemaker, like you know, West. <laughs> Where's the old man in the back? Like, you know. <laughs> well, I do I do think that a lot of people have a vision of winemakers as being old men. <laughs> right. right. Um, but uh that that is changing rather quickly. That is changing rather quickly for, okay. for the better, I think. I think but the narrative around it, right? I think there are definitely traditional winemaking, which I, I totally ex respect that the more vintages you have under your belt, the more experience and more things you have seen. Uh, so I, I always listen to people with more experience. Um, but I think there are a narrative and, and benefit of being naive and young and can do something crazy. And maybe you find something new and interesting. Exactly. I, you're not so rigored into a plat, you know, into a path where, 
you are, oh, you know what? Maybe I'll try this or maybe I'll try that. And uh, my guess is that you're more open to when you read something or hear something of some that might be a kind of a newer concept that you're more more willing to give that a go. Exactly that, and also kind of a new a new type of varieties as well, right? So I'm always looking forward to working with something weird, something strange. Like this year, I'm going to be working in the Haudigi, for example. Oh. Very nice, very nice. And and now, do you you source all of your fruit, or you have a state? We we grow we grow some, yeah. So we do have uh, two vineyards that we manage. One is a Barbera, uh, obviously. Mm-hmm. Another one is a Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, okay. The rest we have relationship with growers, some as long as twenty five years uh, or relationship. And now you're saying that you're a second generation, so you kind of grew up around wine. But that doesn't necessarily mean just because you grow up around wine that you want to get into the wine world. So what about wine made you say, yes, this is the path I want to take for myself. I want to be a winemaker. Right. Well, actually, like I, I use the word second generations a bit loosely, not in that like we, um, Doc and Casco uh, are, are not exactly my like relative parents, right? But I, they are my wine parents. Oh, uh, Okay. I've known I've known them for for over a decade now. So, uh, and they really taught me everything I know about wine. Just starting from being a customer and just going there a lot, and they just keep you know giving. Oh, me so this is this is a full circle. You went to the ta- you went and tasted their really? wine, fell in love with their wine, just kept going back and going back, and you're like, hey. I can, you know, I can go make this wine and then I can have it whatever I want. <laughs> More or less. I mean, I think how it goes. Uh, right. So I frequent the wineries and I love the the co-op. Right. So it has the tasting room has always been a co-op and multiple wineries in the same place. Uh, and because we they are all small, we can always find the winemakers there pouring the wine behind the bar. Um, and we have a great diversity of wine. You know, even today, if you come in, uh, we don't just have Cabernet and like, you know, when you go to Napa, you have like 10 different types of cab. It's a cab. Uh, we have like Zinfandels, we have Vermentino, we have Albarino, we have uh, uh, Chabono sometimes. It's, it's kind of oh. changed all, all the time as well. So really great place to learn and to expand the palate. Um, and then I, I went on and I guess just like kids going off to college, I went on and get my certified sommelier from the court, the master, uh, oh. just to sort of feel like I have a complete education in in wine in some way. Uh, but then I realized I knew nothing about winemaking. Um, so I came back and and asked if I could be a part of the team. So they included me. Uh, and through that, as they were getting ready to retire, uh, we basically step in to carry on the legacy. All right. So good timing. That that works too. So they're still, are they still there now? They're just you're you're kind yeah. of the front person now? Exactly right. So we we drive the the main operations and the decisions, but I consult with them all the time uh on big decisions like, you know, what blend to put together, how like what wine to make or what when to pick. So I do sort of consult them on important things uh and during the, the middle of harvest during the middle of fermentation so I get on a call for a daily report and just say it's like this bin is this number this bin is that number I'm planning on putting this thing in what do you think and uh I think I've gotten it to a point now where they mostly agree with everything I I, I decide on and I think that's it's really like a pretty good feeling when you got to a point where you can align because uh, my most important job, I think, as a second generation uh, of winemaker here is to maintain the legacy and keep the style as consistent as possible while like going crazy and doing weird things on my new stuff. <laughs> right, right. You have to have both paths. You have to have have both paths. And so, when you when did you actually come to the United States? At what age were you? Um, exactly half a lifetime ago. So at, at the age of 18. Yeah. And what is the wine world like in Thailand? Um, were you non-existent? Okay. No, right. The, my, my parents are Buddhist. I was born Buddhist in Buddhism, you know, uh, abstinence is one of the five precepts. So 
a good portion of the population don't drink or discourage from drinking. Um, and so my first wine memory was in high school when I like, you know, sneak out to uh, 7-Eleven, grab myself a wine cooler. Uh, <laughs> really cool drinking it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now coming through a circle, I'm, I, I now make canned wine that kind of applies kind of like drink wine cooler, but dry and I think a lot more delicious. <laughs> So since you mentioned it, let, let's talk about let's talk about this now. Well, before we get into this one, I have three different Barberas here. So you may be going all crazy and having fun doing things, but I think your heart is Barbera. That, right? That's right. Our heart is Barbera, but even within the realm of Barbera, I think we do things with it that might be less conventional. Right, because I think obviously people know Barbera to be Barbera to be a red grape, a red wine uh, from northern Italy. It tends to be lighter in style, um, released young, quaffable, something that drinks Italian drinks all the time with any Italian meal, uh, which I love and respect. But one of the things that Sunset has done really well for many many years, uh, and one honestly one of the things that won us over. Uh, to be a customer, but also to be like part of the business is the flagship Barbera, which from a single vineyard in uh, just across the county line between near the county line between Solano County and, and Napa Valley. So it is technically in Napa, but you know it, it's sort of on our side okay. of Napa, so that okay. southeast. In case people don't know where Susun Valley is, uh, it's spelled S U I S U N. So it's not Suisun, it's Susun. Um, and it is southeast of Napa Valley, just across um, the hill from Atlas Peak um, area. Um, so, and in that little corner, it can be a little bit warmer, uh, especially around where that Barbara vineyard is. The, the, the vineyard actually grown to other um, Bordeaux varietals as well, but that vineyard is also, by the way, the same vineyard that Castello di Armosa made the Barbera from. Oh, okay. the, uh, Mondavi actually put that in many, many, many years ago when they did make Barbera. <laughs> uh, and what we found is that at least in the few rows that we love to make our wine from has this unique clone uh, that I don't know if you've ever seen a Barbera cluster, but it can be quite huge. Like uh, some some clones of Barbera could be like, you know, a size of a baby's head or something like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but this particular clone doesn't have a name. Uh, we call it Nylon clone because Professor of Davis named Nylon has sort of discovered it. It's only about a fist size, uh, really oh. low high concentration of color, lots of flavor, still retaining ripping acidity while developing the sugar and the flavor. So we're able to pick it at a late at a at a higher, I guess higher bricks, higher ripeness, uh, but still maintain that fresh acidity. Um, so it become a pretty big wine. And that freshness really not only so the demand some low of aging because if we release it within a year or two it would just be super tart so we end up kind of developing the style of long aging barbera where we age it for about five years so the bottle that you have in hand is 2013 and that is our current release we, oh okay eight years is year old, year old i did not give you a library wine so <laughs> in 2018 we bottle it uh, and we held on for it on it for a few more years until we released it in uh, last year. I think late last year, earlier this year. So you're you're actually holding it in barrel for five years, holding it in barrel for five years, bottling it, and then holding it in bottle for, for a couple of years exactly. before going in. Okay, so so you're kind of following like a. I mean, it's Italian. I, I know Spanish better. Crianza right. yeah. Reserva method, whatever is the equivalent uh, right, right. in Italy. Yeah, people have been telling us, it's like, oh, you should have called it Grand Reserva or whatever. And I was like, well, it's not like we have another one that is younger and and ready to be released or anything like that. We just make the wine in the way that it most make the most sense for the grapes. For what it is, right? And if 
five years is what it takes and five years is what it takes. <laughs> so uh, that's my next question is, so when you're keeping it in barrel for that long, what is the evolution you see in the barrel? So you, you finish fermentation, you're going to put it in barrel. Take me through the evolution of that wine to where you're like, yep, we're ready to bottle. Uh, we're ready to bottle. It, it is actually quite remarkable. I was not a believer of it myself right in the beginning. I was like, you know, can we just bottle it sooner and just wait <laughs> later or whatever? Uh, and I think the evolution is is quite transformative. The For one, the acid is real high. So if you taste it or if you take it to the lab, rather, uh, the pH is somewhere between 3.2, if not lower. Um, okay. So last year, 2012 vintage, I think we were looking at 3.0, which is, in context, right, this is like the level of like, say, white wine, or even sometimes like sparkling wine uh, level. And and this coupled with sugar level that support, uh, I don't know, the, 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 the bottle may not say this exactly, but the alcohol is about 17%. (laughs) The, All the right, let's see if I can see what it's saying. Although I might say something slightly different. <laughs> well, we, we, we know the legals, right? So you're allowed that one. What what percentage did you say this is? 17. Okay, so, all right. Well, Don't read this it. Says... <laughs> it might be lower. Um, I think partly because here, and this is the, the thing that we not, did not even realize was happening, uh, an unintended consequence, so to speak, is that California, the weather is super dry. So when you uh, age something for that long, evaporation happens mm-hmm. and we have to keep topping. And you know, it depends on what's the concentration, what the humidity is. Sometimes the thing that evaporates also evaporates the alcohol. So right. in balance, but in this, in this environment that we have, only water evaporates, alcohol stays. So every year when we top more wine, we just inevitably add more alcohol to it. So my estimation is that we add, we increase about 0.5% every year. So okay. when the fermentation finished, it was in fact 15, roughly 15%, like when we work it out by the bricks, right? It was. It should have been fifteen percent, but by the end of five years, is ended up being about seventeen percent. So, okay. therefore, that. And are is this Barbera one hundred percent Barbera? It is. It is, and is all of your Barberas that I have right here? Are these all one hundred percent? Are all one hundred percent? One another thing that we have learned through working with Barbera a lot is that Barbera doesn't like to blend with other wines. I'm not sure. Oh. If doing it uh it's an only child it likes to be an only child not a team player (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's you know it's not like carignan or other things that always make other people better (laughs) 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 just just obscure other people or like other people don't i know somehow it we try many many times in very very rare occasions that it blends well uh most of the time it doesn't so what we learned throughout the years is that we can blend a little bit of other vintage. Um, Barbera just really like to blend with itself, um, yes. right? So we can use, you know, a, a, a drop or two of a different vintage to to give it somewhat other dimensions. But, uh, and because we always do it below 5%, we never had to declare it. Um, just sort of our secret thing here. I think that's not so much. A, it might be a secret to to listeners, but I don't think that's a secret to winemakers. I think that's a very common common thing to be done. You take you take the newest vintage and add a little, add add four percent. Exactly. Yes. 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 Oh, I, I oh, I love lovely lo- love to hear that other people use that as a common <laughs> now. Um, but I've decided another bottle that I gave it to you uh, is the Latatas. Yeah. So we're, this one cracked me up when I saw it. So <laughs> I'm, there's got to be a story behind, there, behind there this. Is, okay. So, so the, um, the, the story of the label real quick is that we always partner. We have a, uh, a foundation, a breast cancer foundation, Solano Midnight Sun, our local uh, county level foundation here that we work with for years. 
and that's their logo. And we came up with this fun name called La Tatas. It's always a blend of some kind that we blend together to support them. So the proceeds from that wine goes to help fight breast cancer. Uh, okay, so that aside, uh, this blend this year, instead of doing a traditional blend of different varietals, I have decided I'm gonna actually go crazy on the vintage blending, um, right? And it says in there is 16, 19, and 21 uh, vintages together. And the, cause of this, you know, when we were sitting together and trying to do this blend, uh, we added 5% and it's great. I was like, well, what if we actually like keep it, keep going, let's just keep going. And it just kept getting better and better. Uh, so I was like, you know, forget, forget the vintage, just do right. a multi-vintage, non-vintage uh, style, right? Because I think that technique is used a lot in Europe. Like people do that for champagne, people mm -hmm. do that for, I don't know what other um, regions does it more routinely. But like, I don't think we should really limit ourselves to a vintage just because the law says so. <laughs> right. All, all you have to do is take the vintage off and all is good, right? Exactly right. Um, so, but this is, this is interesting that you can do that because of how you make your Barbera. Because typically speaking, an average winery would, let's say 2013, right? They would be bottling in 2015. Right. Generally, generally speaking. More than two years to, to, to play with. Right. 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 But since you're holding your Barbera for five years in, in barrel, you have like a an automatic playground there that you can just have so much fun with. Exactly. That's that's what I decided that I'm going to step outside the box and just because one thing that Doug, um, my wine father, taught me, right, and I take this to heart, is that our only obligation is to make good wine. And like I am not obligated to the government to like stick with a vintage like no one you know that's if 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 sticking to a vintage make bad wine then why bother like <laughs> i like that yes absolutely absolutely and this so i'm curious when you went to go make this right so this is 2016 19 and 21 so in a normal blending world right even if it's 100% Barbera, you're, you've got different barrels and you're tasting from this barrel, this barrel, this barrel, and you put them together to your best blend of the best barrels, maybe 10% of this barrel, 60% of this barrel. But now you've got vintages and you've got multiple vintages that you could have tasted through in mm -hmm. order to do that. So what, what made 16, 19, and 21 the trifecta for... Perfect. La well, 16, 16 is our sort of the, the oldest uh, one that we have. And that's kind of right. like, it's really mature. Uh, but the maturity like come with like chocolate notes. Uh, yeah, because it, it was, you know, we always use neutral French oak. But even if it's neutral, spend enough time in it, it will it will develop some some kind of more that chocolate, um, chocolate covered cherries uh, kind of flavor. So that by itself is really nice. And I actually do have a, a single 16 uh, bottling that, that I love myself as well. But I feel like it can definitely benefit from something fresh. So 19 is one of our lightest years um, for because it was warmer and we were forced to pick slightly earlier. Um, so I think that, that at, at first I was just going to do 16 and 19, uh, just the two vintage together. But then um, it, maybe this is an accident, but I just happened to have like the the 19, the barrel was low and I needed to top it. Uh, and, and after I was pressing 21, I was like, oh, I'm going to put the 21 in there. Probably going to be good. Uh, and it turns out really good. So I just okay. kept going. <laughs> Some of the best inventions are are found. Actually, the majority of great inventions are found by accident, right? It just right, right. It's it, just, necessity is the mother of invention. So that's there you of, go. Uh, right. So that that is exciting. And so um, the Breast Cancer Society, that the the Solano Midnight Solano Sun Midnight Foundation, um, they how many cases of this are you? Do you produce? That particular one is only 15. 
15 cases. Okay. And and then are you selling this out of the tasting room and the proceeds go, or are you giving them the wine? As... We sell the, the former. We sell at the tasting room and then the proceed goes. Um, we actually have one of our, the board members of the organizations also come and help volunteer at our tasting room. So they they also love wine, and that's that's what we love. It's, it's a bit of a community that we have going on. They can convey the message much better than I would uh, about the foundations, and you know they uh, and the tips the tips that people actually give uh, at the tasting room also goes to the foundation as well. Very nice, very nice. So I'm going to backtrack a bit because your like resume is outrageous. So, I mean, you are a PhD in biostatistics from from Harvard and computational biology and Stanford University is biostatistics. Like, that's incredible. Like, what is, I know what biostatistics is, but what is, I'm a biologist and I don't know what computational biology is. So what is computational biology? That is so cool. You know, I even before, when I applied to biostats PhD, I did not know what biostats was. <laughs> I actually knew what comp bio was before. Uh, but there are, okay, this is such a shift in gear, but let's do it. So there are three, three words, three disciplines, I guess, that people can label what I do in my what my what I study one is bioinformatics another one is computational biology another one is biostatistics and they're all uh overlapping greatly um similar to like how people say like data science versus statistics versus machine learning versus AI right um so these are all just um data analysis data uh mining in the context of biology and you know, I can call myself any of those three things, but computational biology was born out of the realization that um, biological sciences has now generated a lot of data that human cannot simply sift through it by eyes or by simple like excels, and you need a, a real mathematical and computational tool to address it. And this came first from genetics. So as as we completed human genomes and the cost of sequencing and and uh, and reading the genome got a lot lower, we needed people to be able to write programs and do more sophisticated data analysis on it. Therefore, computational biology. Um, but the focus of it is more on the biological side. So we just look at computational tool as a tool. So as opposed to using pipette and PCR, I use my like data analysis yes. to at the genome. Um, I've u- I used to work at 23andMe, a uh, genetic testing company, and that's a great example of how statistics, computational biology, machine learning is used in um, genetics as a way to combine a lot of data together. That is pretty cool. So I, um, I'm a bio- undergrad and master's degree in biology, so I absolutely love it and I get it. Uh, and the genetics is my favorite aspect of it i think it's very cool that to know that one little tweak can make such a difference in you know in the end result and that wraps me back to wine believe it or not right (laughs) one little tweak makes a difference and that's how we get these clones or you know these (laughs) mutations that come about so do you pull that your your biological aspect your your biology background into the winemaker as you're walking through the vineyards and things like that i do uh, yeah one thing i appreciate and love about being uh, a second generation is that uh doug my wine father has kept really good record of all of their fermentations over 25 years so i have 25 vintage of data in some of the wine in some cases just a single uh, varietal single vineyard that gone back decades uh, so I can always look back and see what decision they had made have we seen this pattern like in terms of pH and sugar and ripeness before what decision was made then were they happy with it uh, and and in some years they made several you know five six seven eight fermentations so there are like I think at this point like over a hundred fermentation data point I can look back to. 
and um you know it was kept in in like a long running docs doc like doc x file right so, oh that's better than i thought i i know some white makers that are still using the black the black and white speckled you know college ruled notebook <laughs> <laughs> not quite not quite we, we i do have like a, a master like notebook like actual handwriting notebook that's gone back again over okay. 10 years so that's that's more like a secret bible a sacred bible you know like kind of like you can worship that one but he always transcribed it back to a okay. digital form uh so i spent time kind of like coding it into an excel sheets and actually plot it out and i can plot multiple vintages on top of each other to see like what's the average length of fermentation plus the average temperatures and things like that and what yeast did we use did we were happy with it that kind of decisions as well and now, a word from our sponsor. Josina Wines loves to give back. There are so many fur babies that deserve to find their forever home. We would love to be able to help as many as possible. If you are part of a nonprofit organization or know of a nonprofit organization that would like to hold a fundraiser, please contact us at contact at dracinawines.com or visit our website, dracinawines.com, to fill out the form. How does the fundraiser work? It is super simple and costs your group absolutely nothing. Together, we will choose a month that your group will be sponsored. During the month, you promote the fundraiser just like any other event you'd hold. At the end of the month, we will donate 20% of the sales to your organization. The donations will be made in the name of each individual who purchased the wine so that you know exactly who helped the animals. Our goal is to raise as much funds as we possibly can and to help as many animals as possible. So please help us help as many fur babies as we possibly can. Wow. So when you're, I mean, you legit can look at like what that growing season is and relate it to maybe a previous vintage and see, okay, well, we brought it in at this pH, this bricks level, and it resulted in this end product. Well, I'm going to take that end product and I want to do this to it. So I'm going to, I, I can figure out, well, you can figure out <laughs> how to tweak what that, what that harvest uh, geekiness is, right? The, the pH and bricks and all of that stuff, tweak it to almost predict what you're going to end up with. And I think also correlate that uh, with the living record, right? Where I just get on a call with Doug and Costco and say, <laughs> hey, Doug, like that year look a lot like this. Do you remember liking it? <laughs> like we have done it again. Like and he sometimes he's like, no, that was a mistake or whatever. <laughs> like, uh, right, right. No, no, like, no. We want to skip time. that vintage. <laughs> no, no, no. No, don't make it like that vintage. Make it like this vintage, right? right. Absolutely. So that that's really kind of cool. That that really is bringing the science in to the craft of of winemaking and. It sort of reminds me of like Moneyball with baseball, right? It's like you have these athletes who are can do whatever they do, but then it was the statistician who was able to figure right. out now, which. That's true, but that, like I, I always kind of caution that I think at our level, um, tiny micro wineries, it is more of an art than it is a science. Mm -hmm. You might agree with it, right? And the, the science really is a guide or like a starting point when right. when you know you, you brought in fruit you really have nothing else to work off of other than your past experience so you kind of start with something and then but but beyond that we just nothing nothing replaces being with the grapes tasting the wine as it goes and mm -hmm. make that on the at the moment decisions of what to do <laughs> right. right but i think that good decision-making is based on past experience. Yes. And if you have the ability to have the statistics of past, of somebody else's past experience, right? Like it, it's like adding to your own experience without yes. you physically have been there to gain yes. that experience. Yeah, exactly. I can, it's really nice. And I've, I built that memory to myself as well. Now that I see a few fermentations, right? And I can say it's like, yeah, if it looks like this, my prediction is that it's going to be 
extracted. It's just going to be light. It's going to be a certain way. So I can now like look at the fermentation curve and kind of have a guess about what may have happened then. <laughs> right. Right. You can you can form a an educated hypothesis, right. an, edu right? an educated guess of what is going to occur. Doesn't mean that Mother Nature is going to allow that to occur or that, you know, nothing. I don't want to say the bad word during fermentation, but, you know, <laughs> right. I mean, right, right. There, there's always the nuances of new things popping up that uh, whatever. Um, but definitely. Uh, that that's interesting. So let let's talk about this 2013 Barbera that I have in my glass. So um, obviously, I'm, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but 2013. I'm guessing this is not your <laughs> your wine. <laughs> it, it's not my wine. No, I, I this this one I inherited. Uh, it was there before i came in uh and my job is to study it to the best i can and try to get close to it right um but but again that's something i i admire and love and try to study intently the um one tidbit about this vineyard is that you know we've been making that since 1997 uh 1998 i think the first vintage in fact and um one the first experience we had with the vineyard is that it was a second crop it was not a first crop some uh castello di Marosa or mondavi at the time had taken it but mm -hmm. they yield enough second crops that we could pick you know, a month afterward uh and has still completely balanced uh chemistry and and maturity and flavors and that we've gone back in the subsequent years. And in some years, we actually able to gain, to get access to the first crop as well. Um, but because it was the second crop, it also taught us that it could be left to hang for much longer than one might have thought. So one of the tidbits about it is that the previous other winery had made wine from that vineyard before may have picked it sort of the classic Barbera style, like no more than 23, you know, 23, 24 bricks and ripping high alcohol, up high acid. They're never really that happy uh, with it. Like Mandavi discontinued the program, for example, because you're trying to use this to make into a Italian style wine. But we learned that it doesn't want to be an Italian style Barbera. <laughs> it wants to be something else and we just allow it to be what it is. And I think that's also become a foundation of our winemaking philosophies in general is to not try to impose our will of what the grape should be and just learn to listen to it. Right. That's an important thing because you can't force it to be whatever you want it to be. It's going to buck you every every way right it's gonna be like a wild horse bucking off the saddle i don't want to be that i'm not an italian barbera because i'm not in italy i'm not you know <laughs> the soils are different the climate is different you know my growing season is different everything is different i don't want to be that let me be and i will shine for you right exactly exactly and i think that's that's our job is to to listen and try to do what it wants to be uh, and now I, I've, every vintage is different, right? Although it's the same vineyard, you might sometimes uh, still need to work with whatever it is. <laughs> so tell us about the 2013. What what are your, you know, what would be your expression or your explanation to somebody? I definitely the cherry. And one of the things, and see, I am going to say it is kind of a little Italian a little Italian Barbera, because the thing that I always get with Barbera is um, those candies. Um, it's like the chocolate gumdrop shape thing with the cherry in it. And when you bite at it, it's got some cherry juice in it. Oh, um, yeah. yes. I don't know what the name of those candies are. Um, yeah, but I know. On Cherry or some, some weird name like that. But right. that to me is Barbera. Yes, and and that is like max, like you know that multiplies and concentrate into it, right? So this is a explosion of that flavor, and I and I like that analogy of kind of biting into something and it explodes in your mouth in a way. So that's just a lot of fruit to start with, and the the evolution of it really is that the 
just like other wines like in the beginning is really fruity and but it's fresh right and it's kind of light and and fresh in your palate but then as it age in the barrel it concentrates down uh and intensifies and become like you say more more like compote or more like um yeah syrup like but but not but not in the sweet not the sweet right now the concentration part of it um that and liquor is just another word that a lot of people use and some people even find um kind of mittens kind of a bit more of that um leathery mature nest to it i personally see more like almond taste because of that aging period that is in there mm. I, that I think might be a, a difference between the Italian and the California is I agree with you more that that almondy, the leather, that earth, I think more Italian, older Italian. Um, yeah. And sometimes I feel like the Italians don't get uh, only very few places in Italy that has the benefit of doing a long aging of Barbera. Mm -hmm. usually lost a space, spot to you know nebbiolo <laughs> yeah but i think barbera if anything this hopefully shows you know it is worthy of aging worthy of care uh if you allow it to so i have three barberas here and i know you've got some sneaky barberas down there below you so first before telling us what else of barbera you got what is it about barbera why is it so near and dear to right. to sunset uh, yes so um the for me and as winemakers we love that the acid is high okay. and it, you know it's so weird when i was a consumer um never thought about wine as acidic or never really think about acid as being an integral part of wine right but i feel like as winemaker as we kind of right now as we walk the vineyards and uh playing with the fire waiting for the development of flavors and sugar to go um we always watching for the acid to not drop and um but barbera is one of those that you can it can hang on to its acid even long into the growing season so for example um we make a rosé of barbera and usually people pick rosé and we picked it for the purpose of it being rosé, not a sanye. Uh, so people usually pick rosé right around now because they want the acid to be like three, low three uh, okay. pH. Uh, but like we pick our barbera late September uh, for rosé. Wow. Because we monitor the acid. Like mm -hmm. we care less about sugar. We care less about other things like acids and 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 flavors are the two that we kind of looked at for the barbera uh, for the rosé here. Uh, so we just basically kept waiting for it to be below like three, like to be above rather three point two, <laughs> and it took that long for it to to go. When do you typically pick the barbera for the red program? The red, October. October, okay. The early October. Early October, okay. So so it is kind of a. So it's a middle ripener. Yes, yes. Ripener. So it, it um the variation, for example, was about two weeks ago. So it's it's a little bit later than like middle, but yeah, not late per se, but middle. Okay. Okay. Um, what else? So, and so that I make I make rosé from it. I make a regular red barbera, um, and I made a port style uh, late harvest barbera from it. So I have a little stubby bottle here. Um, and uh, yeah, so we, again, for the same exact reason, you can actually, because of the acid is so high, you can let it hang uh, and make it into a great dessert wine that still has such freshness. And the acid balances the sugar so well that people don't feel that it's cloying. So that's one of the problems of, um, at least for me, some of the port is that it's just so thick and syrupy mm -hmm. and cloying. But this one you can drink really easily um, and still feel the fruit, the freshness of the wine. Uh, it really is a wine that like it sells itself whenever, like when I when I made, only made a barrel of it, 
Um, and whenever, every time I pour it, it sells. So it's like, I never have to do any marketing for it. <laughs> so you're going through your vineyard for three passes for Barbera? No, uh, so no, not, not really. So the, we actually have a different vineyard for the Rosé. Okay. Uh, and for the late harvest, we, we do that once every two years. Uh, and in some years that we have good yield, we might hold back a row or two. Um, to do that. Yeah. Okay. So the poor is not a, not at all the time. Not, all, not an all the time thing, although it's been so popular. I, I feel like I need to try to do it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so people need to get into the tasting room or get online and place an order uh, before it disappears. <laughs> it already did. I mean, oh, it's other... already disappeared. Oh, no. oh well, well, you snooze, you lose people. <laughs> yes, but when I do it next time, please. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Get get on get on the wait list for it. So now you also produce daylight saving. Uh, okay, uh, this is Barbera. Uh, surprise, surprise. Um, oh, and you just said it is a piquet. So tell us. Yes. So piquet. In case people you know, never had or never heard of it, it is a retro modern thing. Something that people only really rediscover recently. Um, but it's something that European farm workers and vineyard workers has been doing it even to today. But since the ancient Roman time, I think, um, there are records of it. And it's come in different names. Um, Piquet is one, a French name for it. But some people call it Aquarello. There are other names. Uh, basically, a second press after you make the first red wine or primary wine. So, for example, if you make, um, we made Barbera, we press it off, still has a lot of flavor and sugar and uh, alcohol left. So you can actually pour a little bit of water in there, press it a second time and get about half of the alcohol out. So we got between seven to nine percent alcohol, uh, full flavor, actually a lot of a lot of aromas that really consistent with the primary wine. Um, but because it's a it's sort of a, a water you know, made from water additions, it's actually a lot lighter. So it remind me, it drinks like beer, uh, but it tastes like wine. And the um, the instigation for this is that, you know, when I go, I live in California, right? And we, we all go hiking sometimes, with great, lots of great hikes. I always wanted to bring something to drink to reward myself at the end of a hike, but I'm never able to bring wine because you're not going to carry a bottle. Um, so I decided I'm, instead of just keep drinking beer, I'm going to make something I can go hike with. And and like, so I put in can carbonated. So it's a little bit sparkling. Oh, okay. Yep. Uh, lower alcohol, really light. So it's really portable uh, and it's completely dry. So it's no sugar. And do you make other varieties in the can? <laughs> I do. So, so this is the first year that I made it. They, uh, we call it daylight saving. I'm really proud of the name. <laughs> um, cause it's for daytime wine. Um, we made five varieties. Um, Zinfandel, Syrah, Petit Syrah, Pinot Noir, and Barbera. And, you know, just because I have those five varietals and it's going to make it. So <laughs> are they all piquettes? Yes. So yeah. So I, as in, we make red wine from those, and I decided to piquet for all five of them mm -hmm. as well. So we have sort of corresponding piquets. Yeah. Very cool. And so, um, tell us, how did you come up with the name? You said you're very proud of daylight saving. So <laughs> yeah. So I mean, daylight saving um, because it's a light wine that we envision for a daytime activity, right? So it's daylight um, and daylight saving. Um, it's a phrase that people always use, and it's a saving of the leftover grapes. Dual purpose, dual. They're very nice, <laughs> very nice. And I have to say, I'm pretty impressed that it wasn't already taken, because you would think that. that yeah, that there's a brewery in the East Coast that does their daylight saving IPA or something like that. Oh, <laughs> that does, but that doesn't matter, right? That, that's that, okay. Yeah, yeah. Not why no one has done daylight saving wine yet. So we have a website, daylightsaving.wine. <laughs> oh, okay. So this is, is this sold? It's sold actually as its own entity. It's got its own website. Yeah. Um. So I, be, for two reasons. One is that because it's such a different wine, 
that doesn't necessarily fit the portfolio or identity of Sunset, right? So I didn't want it to kind of confuse our main customer to think that it's going to be consistent with the classic Sunset wine. But also I see that as having a potential to become its own category of things. Um, therefore, it has its own website, but we drive the sales and the legal side of it through Sunset. Through Sunset. Well, I will say it's smart to separate it right at the beginning then because it's tough to separate after after yeah. the fact. It's more difficult to do that, you know, so you could always drive it in that direction. But I like I like the idea, you know, there's a lot of people who are anti-cans and I, I, I'm, a, I'm one of those believers of there's a time and place for yes. it, you know. Um, if I'm sitting down, I, I, and I haven't tasted this, so I can't say either way, but in my brain, if I'm sitting down and enjoying a nice dinner around a table with friends or family or whatever, I'm not popping a can of beer, a can of wine, right? I'm opening a bottle of wine. Exactly. Right? But as you said, you know, when we're out hiking or we're at the beach or, you know, at a pool or whatever, where you're there and it's a more casual feeling, a more casual relaxation thing. And you're worried about the glass, you're worried about, you know, it's, you know, you can, that's where these come in. And the fact that I think the quality of these have come a long way in the past years. Yes. And also, you know, I, I didn't just, at least daylight saving wine is coming to can, but it's not just taking a bottle, a, a wine that would have put it in a bottle and put it in a can. It's not just an alternative packaging, but for me, it's actually important that I connote the right application uh, and the wine itself is also fitting with the packaging, right? right? So it's, right. it's either wine, it literally drink like beer, it probably should be packaged like beer. <laughs> right. And well, and that actually is another point that you really can't just take wine that is bottled wine and put it in a can. It's a different, it's no. a, it's a different entity. Um, I've, learned in- so much. I've learned so much from doing this, actually, uh, that one of the main problems in the early days of canned wine is, is, is reductive, right? So it's always a bit matte, like smells like matchsticks or something. And like, of course, you can kind of decant it away or if you let it air, but that doesn't fit with the format. Like can, you just want to crack and drink it. And it's right. oh, why does it smell weird? Um, because it requires, it has no oxygen transfer whatsoever. When you put it in a can, it's, it's done. Right. Uh, so you cannot rely on the reduction dissipating from aging or bottle shock for that matter. Uh, so the pa- parameters around free and total SO2 is kind of ridiculous. It's like required total SO2 to be below 60, free to be below 10, like super low. Wow. <laughs> right, because wine is a living thing, right? And in the bottle, it's like you said, it's kind of aging or not kind of, it is aging, right? It's got the micro oxygenation that's occurring that evolve the wine evolves while it's in barrel uh, in bottle this not so much <laughs> yeah no can not so much therefore like i don't think there would ever be a day where we put like super premium wine that would age for decades in a can that's just not what it's for <laughs> right yeah. right so to each its own place and i i like the idea that there's other opportunities to enjoy wine in different locales and different areas um I just think you kind of have to know that it's a different, it's a different beast and you can't, you know, you can't judge uh, a German shepherd versus a chihuahua, right? Like, you know, they're, they're two entities, they're two completely different things or, you know, German shepherd versus a polar bear or something, right? They're two different things. They're meant for two different things. Um, So where can people find Sunset Cellars? Yes, they can find us online at sunsetsellers.com. And you can also, but if you live or travel to Northern California or Napa Valley area, uh, we'd love to see you at our tasting room. So you can look at Sunset Cellars, but we share a tasting room with two other wineries as part of the Susun Valley Wine Co-op. So if you, you know, curious about Susun Valley, the great place that, uh, hidden gem that we are, uh, please come visit and uh, we'd love to see you. Definitely 
send me personally a note and you say, Laurie sent you, uh, <laughs> I will make sure to find time to be able to meet you. And that's um, when they come in. The thing about Sassoon is you're really on the just the opposite side of Napa. So anybody who is coming to visit Napa, Sonoma, um, it's probably actually closer Napa to Sassoon than Napa to Sonoma, right? Yes, actually. <laughs> if you're in downtown Napa, it's actually only about 15 to 15 minutes to 30 minutes drive away. Right. So really just a hop. Um, and that's a highway in between, you know, pretty beautiful ride, actually. I go there all the time. And at the co-op, there's three wineries, so you can come in. Can you come in under you and taste the other two wineries or is everybody appointment only how does that no no, it's actually no appointment required that's one thing about susun is that we're not that busy yet uh so open and we're open wednesday through sunday so only really close monday and tuesday so fairly uh, many hours to choose from uh the way the co-op works is that we actually pour wine for everyone uh so when you do a tasting what tasting list uh, testing flight, you get to sample two or three wines from each winery. Oh, okay. So the flight itself is varied with the three wineries. It's exactly. you don't have to go taste here, then taste here, then taste here. Uh, it's, it's a part. It, you know, if you insist that you only want to taste sunset, which I appreciate, <laughs> and also we can also cater the 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 flight that way. Uh, yeah. But but I appreciate having diversity of winemaking styles in the same house and you can kind of learn the, from the differences between wine that way and that's again how I how I came to be a consumer as I learned the differences that way and you are on social media also correct yes I am so you can also look up us up at Instagram or uh, Facebook under Sunset Sellers if you're interested in following me personally I have my Instagram Fashine Wine, uh, and you can find links to other uh, wineries that I am involved with through that as well. Okay, perfect. And I always have to ask: Is there anything that I missed that you that you feel people should know about you yourself or about Sunset? Mm. Well, I know. I think without going too deep into the Japan side, I think we are all. Oh yes, yes. Please tell us about that because that's kind of that. That is a unique situation. It it is the the you know the winery is as diverse as uh, the winemaker. Uh, The we we also you know have a pretty deep connection to Japan and Asia in general. So uh, one of the two founders of the winery, Casco is Japanese and us second generation, my husband is Japanese and our partners is also Japanese. So we actually have a pretty deep connection with that size. So we have decided that we will we would explore sort of our connection with Japan and have a Japan market. So we exported a number of wine to our wine club over there. And and this is sort of an, a fun innovation on our side where we basically cut out the, the middleman, the importer exporter and sale directly to our customers and able to deliver great wine with great connections uh, for them. And uh, so I think like innovations in wine can happen at multiple levels. And we're pretty proud of the fact that we are uh, cutting through that as well. Yeah. And you could probably teach a lot of other people how to do that because it would be a beautiful thing if we can cut through some of that red tape and tears that do everything else from us. Exactly. You know, if if you are an owner of another winery and would love to uh, talk to you about how we do it, and if you we can collaborate together on exploring that market, because I think that's uh, in general customer love it. We deliver great you know value to to our customers. If you ever travel abroad, right, and if you look at one some of our like American wine abroad, is kind of depressing. Uh, like how much some of the basic super cheap bottles of wine here would end up cost costing when when it end up abroad so um so we're able to to help with that a little bit as well and i think uh maybe last thing i wanted to talk about is because of that connection with asia um diversity in wine is a pretty big part of my personal social mission is about two years ago in 2000 in 2020 i you know when when all of the social things were 
going around and look around uh, and and find myself realizing that was the only one uh, that's not white, like, you know, around here. Uh, and 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 then uh, come to realize that I needed to do something about it. So, you know, obviously, in addition to working with a lot of uh, great talents um, that are, you know, of uh, BIPOC community, uh, I'm also pretty actively involved with the Asian Wine Professionals Group. So every uh, every May we organize the AAPI Heritage Month activities, and now we're about to organize a formal organization around Asian web professionals and able to raise money and uh, support uh, bringing awareness and support careers of young professionals in our group as well. Oh well, kudos to you. That's fantastic. I love it. that. Is fantastic. That okay. is, um, but I. I don't know. You are a whirlwind. You are all over the place. You have uh, your background is stunning, to say the least. Um, and I love talking to somebody who has pure passion. Like, it's always nice to talk to somebody who has pure passion for wine. I mean, nobody's on this podcast who doesn't have a passion for wine. But to have a passion for a specific varietal is up, you know, that's my jam. Like, when somebody can, you know, two feet in, you know, full out for a specific variety that is great and the fact that it's not cab or it's not <laughs> pinot or chardonnay and i'm not saying there's anything wrong with those grape varieties but there's so many varieties out there that that need a little love that need to show you know that that needs a spokesperson to show how great they are and so thank you for doing that for barbara thank you well thanks thanks for to you for Cat Frog. And, you know, I'm always <laughs> a fan of yours too. Oh, thank you. That means a lot to me. Well, I th- want to thank you for coming on and I appreciate you sharing your wines with me and your knowledge. And so I always raise my glass and I will say slancha. I don't know how you say cheers in, in Hi. Thai. Chayo. <laughs> Chayo. Yes. All right. So Chayo. I stick to my little slancha, but thank you for coming on and sharing your wines and Barbera and knowledge. Thank you. Have uh, a great day. You too. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoytbud. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Music is Wine by Kevens. Until next week, slancha. <laughs>